Once again, it's so good to connect with you, my dear brothers and sisters in South Africa. I love you. I pray for you. I wish I could be with you in person to open God's Word, but we'll settle for this second best online. This is our second of three messages from the book of 2 Peter. And so let's read from 2 Peter chapter 1, and let's read the first four verses. 2 Peter 1, 1 through 4, say, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. In our last message, we opened up 2 Peter 1, verse 3. It's as if we were strolling down Namibia's legendary Colmanskop Beach under a moonlit night, scooping up the diamonds. The truths are waiting for us openly in these two verses. Remember the truths that we looked at last time. First, God has given you all you need. We notice there that God has not given us all that we want but he has given us all that we need, and all that we need for a godly life. So when we pray and God does not give us everything that we want, or everything that we think we need, don't blame God. And also don't blame your faith. It may not be because you have a lack of faith, or that your faith is weak. The focus here is on a godly life, which is so much more valuable than what we want we also notice that this is in the past tense, the perfect tense. There's more to come for sure, but we must not uh, let ourselves uh, only focus on the present or the future tenses of the Christian faith. We must root ourselves in a past tense understanding of our walk with Christ. We already have so much. The second truth we looked at is this. God aims his power directly at you, dear Christian. That is, Christ aims his power at us, right? Yes, it was his love and his mercy and his wisdom that granted us salvation and a godly life. But the focus here is on God's power, divine power, and his personal power. It's the power that Christ used. It's the power that Christ used to raise himself from the dead, and now it's ours. And that's what helps us live a godly life. The third thing we looked at was that Christ's connection with you is deeply personal. It's through our knowledge of him, which refers to our faith. Our connection with Christ is not cold, detached, clinical, but warm and personal. We have a relationship with our creator. And finally, last time we noted that from chapter 1, verse 3, that Christ is the one who initiated your intimate relationship with him. That intimate relationship that you have, Christ was courting you. The emphasis here is on the phrase, him who called us. He called us. He summoned us. He drew us. He dragged us. 
we are safe and assured because he took the first step in our salvation. I think it's strange then that we don't spend more time and energy in these two verses from 2 Peter. They're so rich and they're so practical. Maybe we neglect them because they're not in one of the big books of the Bible like Romans or Psalms or Ephesians. They're hidden in this little epistle toward the end of the Bible. But today I want to bring us through verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4, one line at a time, looking at three more truths that God has for us. But before we get into verse 4, let's note a few points from the opening two verses of this epistle. In verse 1, Peter addresses his readers in such a wonderful way, and he's talking to us. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Aren't those beautiful words? Two things stand out here. First, we have obtained faith. We are true believers. We're not just religious robots. We have obtained faith that has been given to us. But secondly, notice that our faith is on par with the apostles. You have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. What an astounding thing for an apostle to say to people scattered across the Roman Empire. You have the faith just like we do. It must have been such an encouragement to them. We learn from this that there are no second-class Christians in God's family. Yes, there are some with more knowledge. There are some with stronger and more resilient trust. Some have more experience and their gifts are developed. But we all have the same faith. We're one big family. Then in verse 2, note the source of grace and peace, where it reads, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is one of those rare passages in the New Testament where Jesus Christ is directly referred to as God. It comes out in the Greek and it comes out in our English Bible as well. He's talking about God, of God, and of Jesus our Lord in such a way as Jesus is God. Peter has a very high Christology in this epistle. Well, let's then return to our beach of diamonds. And where we read in verse 4 uh, once again. Let's read verse 4 once again in its entirety, which says, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world, because of sinful desire. Well, the fifth truth, the fifth gem, the fifth diamond is this. God encompasses you with great and precious promises. Isn't that so encouraging? That God encompasses you with great and precious promises. Verse 4 reads, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. That little phrase, by which, likely refers to the previous verse, to his glory and excellence. The meaning is that the perfection that God used to call us in verse 3 is that very perfection that he has lavished on us with his promises. Don't you realize what this is saying? God has made you great promises. Not only does God demand our obedience, but he showers his true children with great promises. Again, note the past tense element to this. He has granted to us his great promises. 
This is the promise package that we've received in the gospel and applies to us when God called us during our lifetime. God makes promises. These are his pledges, his vows, his guarantees, his assurances. God binds himself by oath to his children. This truth should just stun us. Not only the content of the promises, but the very fact that he would make promises to us at all. That should stun us. That God would bind himself, as it were, to us. That he would tie himself hand and foot to his word in our favor. If it were any other God, he'd be in heaven bossing, demanding, dictating. That's what gods do. But our God goes beyond this. He connects himself in such a way to his people that he has made promises to us. Why would he make promises at all? What mercy, what grace, and we get it all. This clearly shows the two-way relationship of our covenant with him. On the one hand, God throughout the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, but even in the New, he says, you are my people. That is, I own you, you owe me allegiance. On the other hand, I am your God. You can lay claim on me and hold me to my promised word. The two directions of the covenant. You are my people, I am your God. Obey me, and I promise to you. Now, note how the apostle phrases this. Not only has God promised, but his promises are great promises, very great promises. That is, they are large, they are vast, they are big, they are weighty, they are expansive. This phrase shows the breadth of God's promises. Not only are God's promises broad, but they are deep. He says here they are precious promises, invaluable promises. So on the one hand, they are grand, and on the other hand, they are valuable. On my first trip to Mozambique, I was sitting with a group of church leaders, and a person from the town walked up to me and said that he had some rocks that he wanted to sell me. He pulled some stones out of his pocket, and he said, these are stones. Would you like to buy them? And I thought, well, I live here in the Rocky Mountains. I'm surrounded by stones. I have stones all over the mountains and stones all over my house. I don't need stones. But then he told me, these are very precious stones. They are gems. Well, thankfully, the other brothers around me told me, don't touch this guy. He's probably selling you pieces of used glass and nothing else, and he wants to simply take advantage of you. God has given us great promises, and he has given us precious, valuable, gem-like promises. What this means is that God has not only given the promises, but he has guaranteed their fulfillment, says New Testament scholar Douglas Moo. Now, exactly what are those promises? If God has made these promises to us, and if they are great and valuable, I want to know what they are. What are they? Well, let's think on two levels. On one level, I think he's referring to the core gospel promises. That's the context up in verse 3. These core gospel entry-level promises. If anyone is a Christ, for example, he is a new creation. Here's another one. If anyone comes to me, I will in no wise cast you out. Here's another one. And he who believes in the Son has eternal life and will never perish. These are the core gospel promises. These are the entryway to new life and the guarantee 
of all of the rest of God's wonderful promises. But I don't think that we should limit God's great and precious promises here, mentioned in verse 4, to just these good news evangelical gifts. These are the core gospel promises. They open up a door to the world of all of the grand and invaluable promises of God that we thrive on day by day. Think of how relevant the great promises of God are to us. Dear friends, with all the pressures you are under, remember the great and precious promises of God, such as these. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. That's Isaiah 41. How about this one from Isaiah 43? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. How about this great and precious promise from James 4, 7? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Parents, surround your sons with these great and precious promises. From Isaiah 40, for example, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Or how about this one from Isaiah 54? Though the mountains be shaken, my love for you will not be shaken. How about this one for young men? From 1 John chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he will forgive us and purify us. And then there's good old John 3.16. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Moms, raise your daughters with the great promises of God in their hearts, such as these. From Isaiah 40, for example, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. How about this one from James chapter 1? If any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God and it will be given. And that great one from 2 Chronicles chapter 7? If my people humble themselves and pray, I will hear from heaven. How about John 8.36? If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. When your husband or wife is down, open God's word and throw God's promises at your man or at your lady. Show him or her that you really love him or her by reminding that all things work together for good. That's Romans 8. How about for Matthew 6? If God provides for the birds, he will provide for us. How about this beauty from Hebrews 13? He will never leave us or forsake us. And then how about this great and precious promise from Philippians 4? My God will supply all your needs in Christ Jesus. Friends, to be a happy believer in Christ, reflect on this fifth truth. God encompasses you with great and precious promises. Dear friends, I can't guarantee that a promise a day will keep the devil away, but I can assure you that if you meditate on God's obsession with you, you will be happier and more fruitful. Just walk around your house and notice all those little Bible verses posted here and there around your home. My guess is that they are not just the nice truths or thoughts or the deep theology of the Bible. You probably choose very likely the promises of our Heavenly Father to comfort you. We love God's promises. Well, the next truth, the sixth truth, the sixth gem, the sixth diamond that Peter, the fisherman, the disciple, the apostle wrote down at the very end of his life is also here in verse 4. And it's this. God desires that you look just like him. 
look at the outcome of God's great promises according to verse 4. Verse 4 reads, So that through them, the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Through the core gospel promises, through the gospel, God brings us into deepest of associations with him. And he says it in such a stark way here that it almost sounds too good to be true. We participate in the divine nature. Now this sounds a little spooky. This sounds like we somehow lose our identity into the divine, that you somehow merge into the essence of God. That's not what Peter is saying. Peter is simply saying that as we immerse ourselves in God's great promises, and as we participate in the gospel covenant, God leads us to look like him. We become more like him in his character. Your heart begins to beat like his. Your character and your ways imitate his. Your priority becomes the Lord's priorities. You begin thinking like your wonderful maker. What astounding mercy God has had on us to allow us to participate in who he is, in what he is like. What we learn that is that God is not a standoffish God at all. God says, become like me. You line up all the babies at your church, and I'll bet that you can quite easily pair them with their parents. Even at a very early age, you will see a very clear parent-child resemblance. For better, or sometimes for worse, the children participate in the human likeness of their parents. So too with us and our God. The God who makes us like himself now allows us to live like him and look like him. What grace. To the best of my knowledge, I can't think of a single faith, a single religion on earth, where the faithful participate in the character of their God automatically. The gods of all ages are standoffish, distant, holy, other, but not our God. Coming into union with Christ and then growing into him daily, we learn to tell the truth, for example, and as we do so, we participate in the truth-telling character of God. We put off immorality, and when we do so, we participate in the character of our pure and spotless Lord. We grow in compassion, and as we do so, we imitate the God of mercy and kindness. This is healthy Christian growth, not just keeping the rules of the religion and of the church, but growing up into him and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. I truly hope you see how much God loves you by allowing you to look like him. The greatest gift you can give to your children and to your husband and to your wife is your godly character. Because as you grow like God, people learn what God looks like. What a privilege. What a challenge also to make sure that you are living up to God's high calling for you. Well, we have one final gem in this beach of jewels to consider, and it's also in verse 4. And jewel number 7 is this. God has provided a definitive break between you and your past life. Isn't that wonderful that God has provided that definitive break between you and your past life? Verse 4 reads, Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Oh, I know that there is still corruption in us and we still wrestle with sin and temptation, but the gospel makes a definitive break from the corruption that is in the world 
oh, we are still in the world and we are still tempted and we are still even, we still even fall at times. And we do know that there is a true final break in the future at Christ's return. But even now, with our new divine nature, things have truly changed. Don't you see what that means? First, we should be thankful. We are no longer trapped by our past, though it does influence us. We should also live free. Since we are free, live free. We should also be careful to live out that wonderful freedom that we have. Well, in just these two verses, we have the gospel foundation poured out for us. Seven wonderful gems, seven wonderful truths to help us through our life. Everything else is just building on it. Well, before we wrap up here, let's take a brief survey of what we have built the gospel foundations on. And what we do, what we build on top of that gospel foundation. Take a look, for example, in verse 5 of 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8 tell us, don't just sit there now on all these wonderful truths. Grow. Listen to what it says in verse 5. For this very reason, that is because of all these great gospel promises, make every effort. That's a wonderful favorite phrase of Peter here, to supplement your faith. That sounds a little bit scary. Didn't Martin Luther tell us we should not add to our faith, that faith alone? Yes, he's not telling us that we are adding works to our faith to merit salvation. But don't just sit there in the back pew, content that you know John 3.16. Grow, build. He says here in verse 5, he says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Add these things to your faith. Don't just sit there. Don't just relish in these great and precious promises. Grow. Verse 8 now talks about the positive consequences of growing in our faith, where he says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 talks about the negative consequences. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Verse 10 then returns to a positive exhortation, where Peter says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. If you doubt your salvation, maybe it's because you've been a lazy Christian. Oh, you believe the gospel, but you're not adding virtue to your faith. Verse 11 talks about then the reward that we have to look forward to. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, let's conclude. Let's apply. But why don't we let Peter make uh, his own application in verse 12. Verse 12 says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth you have. 
We need to always go back to the basics. We need to remember the basics because we so often forget. Also, we always want something new. We don't want to just go back to the basics and live out the basics. We're always pining for something new and fresh. But also we need to remember the basic gospel because the rest of the Christian life builds on that gospel foundation of verses 3 and 4. Friends, take great comfort. God has given you great and precious promises. Let's pray. Our merciful God, we thank you. Thank you that you have not left us alone. Thank you that you have surrounded us with your oaths, your vows, your commitment, and your covenant. We thank you, Lord, that you are not standoffish, but you are near us. Thank you, Lord, that you allow us to look like you. Oh, Lord, we could just be tripping along in our little lives here, but you have allowed us to participate in your character. Help us to be thankful and help us to be diligent. I pray, Lord, for my dear brothers and sisters in South Africa. Be gracious to them. Bring health, Lord, to their society. Bring health to their economy. We pray for the churches, Lord, that they would use this opportunity to do good things, good feats for God, Lord, uh, during this pandemic. Have mercy on our world. Teach us, Lord, that a greater judgment is to come and help us to be warned and ready for that. We give you thanks for our time in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.